0: Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing?
1: Oh, I'm doing great. Just trying to, you know, uh, see the sun shining again in Biden's America and keep up with all the uh, exciting things that are going on both uh, in Washington and in Georgia, which is I guess why we're all listening to this show, isn't it? Yeah, you're supposed to tell us all of the exciting. I know. I, I realized that mid intro, then <laughs> it's like, oh wait, that's my job.
0: Well, this is the first show that we've done under the Biden administration. It does feel a little calmer. Blood pressure is a little lower. I find press briefings and uh, statements by the president to be a little more informative. So at least we're we're at that point in our our governing lives here.
1: Yeah, I, I have uh, had uh, far fewer panic attacks from a news alerts uh, since since Biden became president. So that is a, a nice, a welcome change.
0: Well, we are going to talk a little bit about Biden and this new administration today. Uh, we are also going to recap last week's hearings on the state budget. Last week was the full week of budget hearings that the legislature typically does early in session. Uh, during these budget hearings, they were preoccupied with getting the amended budget, the uh, commonly known as the little budget, getting that ready to get it out the door with the possibility that COVID could impact the schedule for this legislative session. Um, so there was a lot of discussion about changes to the amended budget. But we're also going to use this as an opportunity to talk about some of the broader dynamics with the state budget that we've seen in recent years if you have listened to our state budget episode that typically follows budget hearings week over the last one or two sessions the story is very similar this year to what we've heard in in recent years about underfunding key priorities and a a complaint that at least i have about the state valuing its business climate over investments in in people and its workforce and in helping everyday Georgians thrive in our state. And then we'll wrap up today's show with some news and notes, some other things from session that we've noticed, including Governor Kemp's uh, re-election strategy starting to become a little bit clearer and starting to get a little bit of a sense of how he's going to campaign and, and what outside groups he might have to help him, along with the appointment of Barry Fleming to uh, Speaker Ralston's Special Election Integrity Committee, that was an appointment that raised alarms for voting rights groups. Um, As listeners may know, we are going to be on the lookout for changes to voting laws that make it harder to vote in this state. And Fleming is somebody who has made it harder for people to vote in Hancock County in this state. So we'll see if that's a precursor to what he may try to pursue during this legislative session. Luke, let's start with the budget here. And and as I mentioned in the intro, the trend here is similar to what we've seen in recent years. The state is continuing to underfund, particularly spending on education and health. They're carrying forward $697 million in cuts to education, $283 million in cuts to health agencies. And largely, they are keeping in place many of the cuts that Governor Kemp called for during last year's budget. As a reminder, the state basically did an across-the-board 10% budget cut of most agencies last year. That totaled $2.2 billion in cuts. They are going to restore about 60% of the cuts that they made to the education funding formula. But in all of the non-education spending, which is largely spending on, on healthcare, public health, other priorities like that... Those cuts are largely going to remain in place, with the exception of maybe some tweaking that the legislature will do. Luke, we always end up in this situation talking about the budget, and we'll get into some more details here. But but just as a starting point, we're in the middle of a crisis, in the middle of a pandemic. We also saw Democrats be very successful in the most recent election, and yet on probably the most consequential legislation that the state passes every year, we're largely seeing status quo. Is that surprising to you? And and if it's not surprising, what needs to be done to make budget issues sort of more relevant in this discussion?
1: Well, it, it's hard for something that is the norm and status quo to be surprising, isn't it? Because <laughs> to me, like, this is what they always do. I mean, like, you, we could honestly just, like, replay some tape from previous shows. Uh, we've been saying that a lot lately, but I think it's especially true uh, on the budget because, um... This is just an area where the governor has a tremendous power. Um, and it's really difficult for a single legislator or even a, a group of legislators to make big fundamental changes to the budget, uh, at least in Georgia. And I mean, I, I want to start from a fair place, which is the fact that, you know, Georgia is required to have a balanced budget. So that does tie your hands to some extent that you can't really radically change the budget from one administration to another um, or one year to another. Uh, Over time, you can definitely make some big changes. And the thing I think that is really frustrating in, in this crisis situation is that the Republicans in leadership in Georgia really have only one playbook, which is Cut. (laughs) You know, like that really seems to be the only thing they know how to do. Um, And if there are situations in which they can't really, you know, find the money for Vigal programs, they are always going to just cut money from those Vigal programs and never explore other things that we could do instead because. As I have mentioned uh, many times on this show, we have some ridiculous tax breaks that we should be looking at instead, like the yacht tax, the yacht repairman tax, my you know, my hobby horse that I will beat until it's gone. Um, and, but there I mean there's all these tax credits. The most famous one and arguably the most successful one being the film tax credit. There's all these issues and we just like never look at them. And so it's so frustrating that we don't have that conversation because there have been some ways and means, Chairman, in in the past that have been flirting with like looking at all these tax breaks we have and trying to get rid of some of them because I'm sure there's some money, some money that we could, you know, look at trying to recoup by getting rid of some of these tax breaks, even if it's just temporarily while we're in this crisis, so that we aren't. Underfunding education. We aren't underfunding vital health services and all these other critical things that the state provides. And it really, what it comes down to is just a highlighting of the Republican, conservative, call it what you want, governing philosophy that they don't really see this as the red flashing light problem that you and I see it and that a lot of other, you know, uh, progressives and just general good governance experts see it as because it's just in their philosophy that government is not very important. And so if you're underfunding something that's not important, then that's not really a problem.
0: Yeah, there are, you know, occasionally you'll see a few Republicans who do raise concerns about this. Uh, Chuck Huff-Settler, he's a Republican and he's the uh, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. He does support a review of the special interest tax breaks that the state gives out every year. He wants to do a two-year review and modernization of the state's entire tax code. Um, That would be one place that the state could find additional revenue. Another place that the state could find additional revenue is to increase the state's tobacco tax. We have one of the lowest tobacco taxes in the nation. And just raising it uh, from $0.37 per pack of cigarettes to $2 per pack of cigarettes would raise up to $700 million per year for the budget. Which is enough to close the entire gap on all of the ways in which they've shorted education funding. Those are two ideas that are on the table, but they don't have broad support among Republicans in a way that would suggest that they are actually options that could get passed this session.
1: Yeah, the cigarette tax issue drives me particularly insane because, like, I understand that republicans in the state of georgia want to be like we'd never raise taxes ever but i i mean it's not as you mentioned we have one of the lowest cigarette taxes in the country it's not like tobacco is a big industry in georgia comparatively because i'm sure i'm sure there are some tobacco farms in georgia but i know it's, it's not it's
0: notable that north carolina's tobacco tax is higher than
1: ours right and that's exactly where i was about to go which is like north carolina is a huge tobacco state and it's higher there and it's just like Cigarettes aren't good for you man. <laughs> it's particularly not good for people during a global pandemic when it's a respiratory, you know, illness. Like I think it would be a no-brainer good policy decision for them to increase this tax because while yes, they want to be the no tax party, like most people, even cigarette the cigarette smokers in my life, which I know I do know a couple, like they aren't happy that they smoke and I mean, it's been proven, like, if you make things more expensive, people buy it less, usually. And I think making it harder for people to buy cigarettes and having some good, you know, outcomes uh, in the state by raising really vitally needed funds. And the fact is that much money. I, I, I just this seems like something that's so easy that during a crisis like this where we so desperately need more money, uh, that would be a great place to to get it from without having, you know, to like face your voters and being like, oh, I raised the income tax or all these taxes that, you know, people really, really feel personally about, because as far as, you know, <laughs> what, what happened to sin taxes, man, <laughs> like Republicans used to love those. So I, I feel like that would be a great opportunity to raise really vitally needed funds because it just is so low. And it's just one of those things that like, we've been talking about for years, and even some Republicans have been talking about for years. And I just don't understand why it hasn't happened yet.
0: The other thing that's particularly frustrating is the state of the education budget. So we have only fully funded the QBE funding formula, which is the name of the formula that provides most of the state funds for education. There's also uh, a few other programs that broadly that feed into education funding in the state. Um, We've only fully funded that formula twice since 2003. And this year we are going to continue to underfund that formula by I think about $400 million on top of the other ways that we're underfunding things like transportation, things like providing offsets in funding for districts with lower property wealth, which means that they generate less local money for their own education systems Um, Stephen Owens from the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute has a lot of interesting work on this that we'll put into show notes. But we've only fully funded the formula twice since 2003. And we put schools in a position over the last year of having to draw upon their own reserves, their own local level reserves for their schools to keep things fully funded. They've also cut some funding for professional development and for buying equipment that they need. And yet the state is making no effort to go into its own piggy bank, its own rainy day fund to help offset these cuts. You know, governor Kemp had initially said that we would go a little bit into the rainy day fund on last year's budget. And then the revenue figures looked better than was anticipated. And so instead of closing the gap on education cuts, even more, they're just choosing to leave the rainy day fully funded and that to me is just a it's a frustrating selection of our priorities when we have i think we have over a couple billion dollars in the rainy day fund and we can't help make schools whole in the middle of a pandemic
1: well we can Kyle they're choosing not to that's true and yes. i mean the th- the thing here that like i was just thinking i remember a couple of years back when we were talking about the budget and we were you know, questioning Deal for continuously putting a bunch of money in the rainy day fund. Like he was really going out of his way to manipulate how the Georgia budget worked so that they could keep putting more money in there. And we were critical of that. And maybe we shouldn't have been because Deal did an excellent job of putting in a bunch of money into the rainy day fund, which to me, I don't know, global pandemic where... <laughs> You know, we have to shut down for a couple months. I feel like that is literally a ringy day when it comes to a government. Like, I cannot think of a ringier situation besides, like, open warfare. (laughs) where the state would have like a worse situation in which its budget would need more money. So How can like, it would
0: be worse and us still have a government in place.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, it's just like I I'm just so confused as to like what they think they need this fund for if not this. And so I know we're going to talk about this in, in, in a bit, but like as far as like making the budget a political issue, I mean, this is just like laughably out of sync with reality to me where they have this fund that's literally to help handle budget shortfalls during emergencies and we're in an emergency ask brian kemp (laughs) he you know he signed a piece of paper saying state of emergency and you know and and it's not like the economy is doing great it's just doing better than we thought it would be doing considering global pandemic where many many people have died and been sick and so if we were ever going to use the rainy day fund like i imagine it would be now i would be using it to Fund healthcare programs, fund the vaccine distribution, fund tex- testing. And it's just like we're not dipping into this money that's there for this purpose. You know, there's plenty of times to be critical of people, you know, dipping into designated funds when they're not supposed to go one thing and they start spending it towards another thing. But like this is literally for this situation and we're not using it. And, and worse, I mean, we're putting money into it instead of taking money out of it or just keeping it level. That's the most insane part of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, where I actually didn't know that we had this, but there is a legal limit on the amount of funds that this that the rainy day fund can hold. One concern that I have, you know, Speaker Ralston is is interesting in all of this, and we have been complimentary of of Speaker Ralston on a lot of issues. This is a place where I think he is not in a very good place. He has consistently stood in the way of some of the most common sense revenue raisers, like the tobacco tax. And he also, even in the lead up to this session in the middle of a global pandemic, reiterated his belief that when they passed an income tax cut in 2018, they had set up legislation that would cut the top income tax rate of the state on two different steps. And the second step was supposed to happen in 2020, but that all got blown up over concerns over the budget and the emergence of the pandemic during the last legislative session. In the lead up to this legislative session, Speaker Ralston still said he believes that he and other Republicans made a commitment to the state to pursue that income tax cut. And I'm interested in, you know, I don't have any, you know, insight that suggests this, but I'm interested in whether a full rainy day fund starts to become a rationale for cutting income taxes again And we continue to overlook all of the problems that we've been discussing because he has been particularly consistent about uh, his view that he loves tax cuts, that he thinks people should have their income tax cut. And he has stood in the way consistently of raising more revenue for the state budget.
1: Well, I hadn't thought about that, Kyle, until this moment. But now I'm convinced that that is exactly what they are doing, (laughs) uh, that they are I mean, again, they haven't said anything towards this, but that does sound like the typical maneuvering that the Georgia GOP is pretty good at and I, I am sure that they we will be dealing with them next session when the economy has really turned around, uh, because COVID is handled to some extent. At least I, I hope that's what you know, I I'm hopeful that we will have to deal with this narrative of the Georgia economy doing really, really well and uh, our revenues being much higher than they are this year and the rainy day fund basically being full and they'll just be like, yay, tax cuts for everyone. That I mean, that, that, that seems quite likely, honestly, especially with it being an, an election year. I'm sure that is something they will love to campaign on because there is nothing that gets a Republican more excited than campaigning on a tax cut. Um, so, you know, it, it's just... If, if they keep it up, we're going to have uh universal basic income in Georgia because they're going to cut taxes so low they're going to have to go negative numbers.
0: Yeah, but the universal basic income will start for people with incomes over half a million dollars a year.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, as a
0: brief aside, there is there is a reason to have a healthy a healthy sum in the rainy day fund. Um they often talk about the state maintaining its AAA bond rating which helps us borrow for capital projects and if we maintain a triple A bond rating. We get good interest rates on all of that borrowing. And governor deal was persistent about putting money in the rainy day fund because when he was first governor was in the middle of the great recession and they drained the rainy day fund down to only, I think a day or two of state operating expenses. But I think, you know, as we've talked about, like you should have a healthy rainy day fund. You should use it in emergencies. And when you have opportunities to raise revenue In other common sense ways, you should take those opportunities too, so that we don't continue to other continue to underfund other important things like like education and healthcare.
1: Yeah, because I mean, my bar was very low. I mean, (laughs) I wasn't saying drain the entire rainy day fund, but like you could use a little bit of it right now, or you could at least not put more into it during a crisis. I think that's a pretty low bar. Yeah.
0: Um, Luke, let's talk a little bit about how Democrats should respond to this, and. I'm sort of 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 two minds on this, as I always am. Democrats are good about saying the right thing on these issues. Um, GBPI had a conference last Friday, and new House Minority Leader James Beverly was a speaker on the legislative panel at the conference. And he did say that the state should use the Rainy Day Fund to fill in all of the cuts that were made over the last year. Um, He does want to find ways to close those cuts. And yet, it feels like this never becomes sort of a perennial issue where Democrats make a stand, draw a strong contrast and present their vision for what governance under Democrats would look like. And it's not for having the wrong positions or saying the wrong things or voting the wrong way. Most of the time, to me, it's just this general sense that I have that budget issues don't resonate and don't activate people in the same way that like an aggressive abortion ban does, or that we may find that stringent voter restrictions will. Um, I imagine there will be a lot of organizing around those restrictions. If they come to be this legislative session how do you think that dynamic changes?
1: I honestly don't know if it does, which is really depressing. Um, but I, I don't, I really don't know if it can. And I, I think the reason why that is, is, you know, first I'll, I'll, I'll introduce my deep personal bias, which is, you know, on, on the Democratic campaigns that I worked on in 2020 and ones that I was uh, paying attention to and helping out. Um, both uh, officially and unofficially. The $1 billion education cut was something that pretty much every state house and state senate candidate campaigned on, and most of them lost. And they really hit these candidates hard. I mean, there were mailers left and right. So, like, if you were a voter in this district, you saw this message and you got it from both the official campaigns, from outside groups, like, Democrats were talking about that budget cut in a real deep way. And, I mean, this is something that Jason Karger campaigned on very hard. He campaigned very hard on the QBE formula not being fully funded. Uh, it was no secret. <laughs> you know. So people are aware, I think, um, that we're not funding education. But I, I think for whatever reason, uh, voters either – don't dive into it or they just throw up their hands and they're just like, well, you know, it's not like anybody else could have funded it fully. Um, you know, I I, I don't know. I, I probably need to do a bunch of polling and a focus group to get why people don't get fired up about this issue like I do um, and don't put more blame at the Republicans' feet for it. I mean, I, I think it's sort of like, you know, the a lot of voters that did not really blame Donald Trump for the pandemic hitting his door, but did blame how he handled it. It just seemed like the, you know, the need to cut a bunch of money during an emergency was something that the Republicans got a pass on because, I mean, to be fair, like they're going to have to cut money last session because of the the pandemic. Like they're, they could have cut it better. They could have, you know, tried to find less painful cuts, like the tax breaks I keep talking about. But I think most voters just like, it just didn't get through to them, or it was something that they either rogue off as not their fault. Um, and it's just it's just not mobilizing uh, for them in the same way that those other issues are, because I think the element of it being a political choice is something that hasn't really attached to budgets, because one of the first things that was said in my uh, master's uh master of public administration budget class was that like budgets are a policy document they're a messaging document and they should be viewed that way uh that they are trying to communicate what that you know government values and what they think is important and i just don't think most people think about that in that way. Also, those documents are you know hundreds of pages long and have lots of charts and uh, you know uh, spread you know spreadsheet looking things that intimidate people. So I think it's just a lot harder for people to wrap their heads around it. And you know, compared to an abortion bill, which you know could easily have not been signed, whereas like you got to sign a budget, you got to make decisions. And I, I think people just you know are, are willing to show some. Uh, more latitude on on that than some of those more clear-cut issues.
0: Yeah, I will say I listened to several um, subcommittee state appropriations hearings last week. To be completely honest with you, most of them were very boring. Even uh, the testimony from Dr. Kathleen Toomey, who is the uh, head public health person in this state and is in the middle of combating a -a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. Even her presentation was not really riveting. Uh, Not her fault, but just when you're talking through through budgets and and program operations, it's just not the most thrilling thing. Um, And I do think, you know, the budget itself is a massive document. And when you hear people talk about the budget, typically you hear this run through of numbers and how funding has changed from last year to this year. It's not easily apparent what the downstream impact of cutting several hundred million dollars out of education is going to be. It's hard to, you know, see the immediate concrete result of that just by looking at at budget documents. And so I do think the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, they um, are a part of this group that is pushing this people-powered prosperity campaign and they have this underlying foundation for the campaign that's a vision that'll help people recover and thrive and, and presents a complementary way to view Georgia's success compared to the way Republicans typically frame Georgia's success, caring not only about its business climate and, and um, its businesses, but also about people thriving and about people having the resources they need to meet their basic needs and, and do more than that. I do think that that's a, a compelling vision to the budget. I think it does a good job of sort of tying it all together and and helping people understand that, you know, for a lot of reasons, including, you know, racism and policies that have tilted economic outcomes towards wealthy people, there's a lot of people who get left behind in our state's economy and they get left behind on education. They get left behind on the programs that help them meet their basic needs. And then it makes them harder to succeed in an environment in this state that has a lot of low paying jobs that have very few protections for workers. I think tying all of that stuff together is helpful, but it's still, it's a, it's a complicated explanation for why maybe 10 or 15% of Georgia's population is struggling. And that I think is just, it's a tough thing to get through. I, what I am hopeful about is that one way to message about these problems more widely is a series of statewide campaigns and we're going to have big campaigns coming up in 2022 we're likely to have Stacey Abrams running for governor again i thought that she was a very i thought that she was a very compelling candidate on policy last time and i thought she did a pretty good job of weaving all of these things together and and talking about this different vision for the state under her leadership i hope we get another one of those type of campaigns in 2022.
1: As you were going through that, Kyle, what really came into my mind is I I think part of the problem on these budget issues is that for a lot of Georgians, not all Georgians, maybe even most, Georgia is like working pretty okay for you, you know, especially if you're in the metro area if you're you know someone like us that have college degrees but there's and there's a you know a much much smaller group that george is working really great for and they love that business first uh climate but the thing that i think you're getting at that um you know, Stacey Abrams got at really effectively in her first campaign, I'm sure she would in her second uh, if she runs, is just that Georgia doesn't work for everyone and it doesn't give everyone an equal chance. And, you know, worst of all, I think for a government, you know, it doesn't help provide a cushion for people when situations out of their control get rough. And that, I think, is where the budget fails really significantly and i think it takes time to make people understand that those policy decisions are happening and that those opportunities to build a more equal state a you know state that uh really cares about how everyone does not just the people who are already succeeding in society um can be built i i think that's actually a thing that Democrats have to find a way to overcome because people are always nervous about change. You know, uh, change is uh, scary and risky, uh, but very oftentimes necessary. But it's hard when things are mostly working for people most of the time for them to embrace a narrative of change, especially because the people who would most benefit from that change are the people who are most disengaged from the system, usually just because the system hasn't really given them much reason to be engaged. And so I think that is uh, a really interesting part of the coalition that we saw that elected uh, Biden and Ossoff and Warnock. Uh, that it includes, you know, both of those big groups I was talking about. It includes a lot of people that Georgia is working really well for and included a lot of people where Georgia wasn't working very well at all. And so I think um, seeing how that develops into the future will, will be interesting.
0: Let's move on here and talk a little bit about our new president, Joe Biden, our new vice president, Kamala Harris. We also have two new Democratic senators. They are all, all of them are now in office. Um, and it, to me, I'm i am very interested in how the early days of this administration are going to go. Um, because of the election of, of Reverend Warnock and, and John Ossoff, Democrats have a trifecta in Washington. Um, this is the first time that they've had Trifecta control of the federal government since 2009, 2010. Um, that was also during a crisis. It was during the Great Recession, and that was one of the most productive legislative periods that Congress has had in maybe the past 30 or 40 years. Was those first two years of the Obama administration. We are back here in a in a crisis again, and notably when Joe Biden campaigned in Georgia in the last days of the Senate runoff, he tied strong legislative action on COVID to electing John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock, including the $2,000 checks and also other big pieces of COVID relief. And we got it. You Democrats won the election. You'd think they're ready to govern. They're ready to get it going. But you also saw in Joe Biden's inauguration address, a call for unity and a call that a unified Washington is necessary for solving the biggest problems that this country faces. That presumably includes Democrats and Republicans governing together to get a big COVID relief package across the finish line. Now that we're about a week into this administration, it sort of feels like we're back in the Obama administration. You're seeing Republicans complain about spending and seeing them being relatively cool on this COVID relief proposal that Joe Biden has proposed. And so it raises a question for me about how Joe Biden is going to govern and and how we think maybe he should govern in, in the first couple of years of his administration. Luke, the biggest initial piece of this is the COVID relief bill. It's a $1.9 trillion proposal that includes includes stimulus checks. It also includes funding for vaccine distribution and testing. It includes extended unemployment insurance, which the current programs expire in March. It includes funding for reopening schools. It's a $1.9 trillion package. So it includes a lot more than what I just mentioned. Um, Big proposal. If, Joe Biden cannot get Republican support for a big proposal like this. At what point does he turn to Democrats and ask them to just pass the bill by themselves?
1: Well, the the first thing I would say on that is that what's far more likely to happen is that Democrats will turn to Joe Biden and say, let us pass the bill. Uh, because I think Joe Biden's tolerance for uh, the Republicans' obstruction will probably be higher than congressional Democrats, which I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I just think that's the true dynamic. Um, I, I really hope that Joe Biden, and there, there's elements of his speech that point in both directions on this one, that Joe Biden looks at the word unity as unity in the American people by passing an agenda that ma- the majority of them support, rather than unity uh, through the strict lens of bipartisanship, because... You know, it takes two to tango. Uh, you cannot be bipartisan with a group of people whose number one political goal is your failure. Uh, because if you continuously wait for them to show up to the ball and they never come, like, you know, they, they will succeed in, in having you fail. And th- there are many times where, in very good faith effort, both sides tried to negotiate things, and there are just elements of the Republican Party that were not willing to do it. Um, you know, you can go back and look at things, that John Banger said uh, around this issue, but you know, take it, take his article of faith that that happens a lot. And so, for for me, what I think Joe Biden should do is focus on those problems that we have in this country, like. You know, dealing with the coronavirus, dealing with incoming equality, that there is no like concern about is this an issue that the majority of Americans agree on? Because once you break 60% on a poll, <laughs> like that poll is accurate, right? Like, when, you know, polls are plus or minus five points, and you know, bad polls plus or minus five points in either direction, but there's plenty of 60% issues. Coronavirus being the top one, and if the Republicans want to stand in the way of the amount of resources that is necessary to actually get this done, nobody, and I do mean nobody, will care that no Republican voted for the package two years from now. They will care, like, did the Biden administration do a good job of getting us out of this pandemic? No one will reward the Biden administration If they got a bipartisan bill that didn't work, that will unify no one. So that, I mean, that's, that's my framing for this is people want to get things done. And on a lot of times political parties, like won't get blamed for how certain things go, but on this one, they will, they will get blamed directly on the success and I, I listen to the Sunday shows. I watch the Sunday shows because I'm one of those people. And I saw Ron Kling on Meet the Press saying that, like, this administration wants to be held accountable. We have laid out this goal of 100 million vaccines in our first 100 days. And so, if Joe Biden thinks it takes this $1.9 trillion package, to get that goal done of 100 million vaccines in 100 days, then that is the unifying thing that he should do because uh, you know just and just like we were saying with the Georgia budget, the republicans are ideologically opposed to the government being successful in many many cases. And they don't they can't fathom that the government needs to handle this situation and most Americans want the government to handle this situation and are expecting the Biden administration to do that. And the Biden administration has set this as a thing for them to be held accountable for. So, I mean, under that framework, Joe Biden would be insane to not pass the bill that is required to hit that goal to revive the economy, because I mean, he just knows dealing with these people as long as he has, that sometimes they're just not going to make a deal under any circumstances because they want the political, you know, you know, stick to beat them over the head with of saying, aha, they weren't bipartisan, you see. And I, I mean, if they're going to do that, then pass the package that will actually work and they can go out in history of not supporting it.
0: For the first time in a little while uh, in preparation for this show, I kind of took a look back at the broad swath of Joe Biden's agenda for his presidency, just beyond the immediate crisis of, of COVID and economic relief. And I think it is true. He, he actually campaigned on a much bolder progressive agenda than he was often given credit for. He proposed plans that would cut child poverty in half, that would make housing assistance benefits and entitlement, that would raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, that would make a robust down payment on infrastructure and research and development, that would give us a real chance at combating climate change. And, Republicans, especially here in Georgia, responded to a lot of these big ideas by raising the specter of socialism and you know the end of American life as we know it. But they weren't effective in this last election season, having lost both the Senate seats and, and the presidential race in this state. Beyond just the short-term question of COVID relief, if Joe Biden had support from Democrats, to pursue this bold agenda. I think we agree there's a lot of good outcomes for people and for the future of our country for this agenda. But I'm interested in, do we think that a bold agenda like that would be good for Democrats politically in Georgia?
1: I I think people don't really care where you would put an agenda on an ideological chart because people don't think like that. People think about like, you know, I mean, it's the, the, you know, the Reagan thing, like, are you better off today than you were four years ago? Um, And I I think that is really what this administration is going to be judged by. And if I'm Joe Biden, if I'm a congressional Democrat, that is my only metric. Like, what can we do to make people feel better very soon? Because one of the things that I think is a lesson of the Obama administration is like, you should not be passing policy that will become popular eight years after you pass it, or six years, however long it took Obamacare to become popular like that is bad policy making. What you should do is find ways to pass things that will be immediately popular, and people will clearly identify as something you successfully did that's especially important in this crisis situation because we found out in the last crisis situation in which Joe Biden had to play an integral role that delaying relief for the false hope of getting some Republicans to vote for something is not worth it. And I I think there are some issues in this package that Biden and his team have put together that probably are there for them to get rid of for a good faith negotiation of trying to get some Republicans on board. And so they can see, look, we, you know, lowered the minimum wage to $10 Ten dollars an hour instead of fifteen. See, we're trying to work with you, but and if the the Republicans might go for that, but if they don't, then they definitely need to just pass their bill, get things done for people, so that all of the work we've done is shown to matter. The thing I'm most worried about is that Democrats will lose the momentum they have of showing people. That elections matter, because if Democrats are not able to get significant things done after how hard we campaigned on elect us, we will get significant things done. I mean, that will be, I think, as damaging to the party brand as Trump has been to the Republican Party brand, because... I mean, it is a key operating principle of the Democratic Party that we care about government and we can make government work and do better things for our constituents. And this package that they're trying to pass would do that in a lot of real substantive ways that people would feel feel, and that people, I think, would pretty readily give credit to Biden and Democrats for it. I I think congressional Democrats are not willing to wait very long because the congressional Republicans just have not played fair uh, with these things. And I I mean, even the news coverage is significantly different than what I remember during the Obama administration. I mean, it's, it's become a lot clearer to people, I think, that many of these Republican arguments are not made in good faith. I think the Trump era made that a lot easier to see because... When you have Republicans not mentioning the deficit one time and then Biden's the president and they're lagging themselves on fire and ripping their shirt talking about the deficit, like people are just like, you're full of shit. Like there's no other way to put it. And they have started to get labeled as that because that's what they are. And so I I think on that front, my real question just comes down to what is Biden's definition of unity? is Is it this artificial getting someone with an R by their name to vote for my package, or is it the let's get the things done that over 60% of the country agree needs to be done? I'm really hopeful that it's the latter, that it is the thing that Amer- the American people want rather than the American politician wants. And I think the reward for that will be substantial for Democrats because the place I'll end here, you know, at <laughs> this point at least, is that like... People forget that social security was a thing, that Republicans freaked out about, that Republicans treated like it was socialism, like it was the end of the America as we know it, and it is is now one of the most popular programs uh, that the country has ever created, and that it is a very, very tough thing to even tweak in any direction because people like it so much, and there's just... Some amount of bravery needed from Democrats in this moment to, you know, just realize that, like, we have been put here in these offices to do substantive things. And we will not be forgiven by, you know, if we dilly dally trying to get Republicans to vote for something, you just need to get it done. And people need to see that you're doing things for them. And that will solidify your electoral prospects into the future far more than getting you know, Pat Toomey to vote for your package and shaving off a trillion dollars off of it and making it completely inert and ineffective for that bipartisan vote. It's just not worth that.
0: Well, let's talk about the filibuster. And I'm not talking about your monologue. I'm talking about the filibuster in the Senate. I've set you up here, I think, to put a little bit of pressure on John Ossoff and and Reverend Warnock, Um, although maybe particularly pressure on John Ossoff, because it was notable, you noted this and, uh, now Senator Ossoff's campaign, you noticed that he very frequently made bold statements about the kinds of policies that he would like to see passed, and that the path to getting those policies passed was to send him and Senator Warnock to the U.S. Senate. That part is done, but the decision that sits in front of Democrats now is whether or not to eliminate the filibuster in the U.S. Senate and have a clearer path to passing this agenda in in these issues in, in a bunch of different buckets. And just to remind people, if you're not familiar with US Senate rules, we haven't talked a lot about, really we haven't talked a lot about Congress lately at all. Um, in its simplest form, the filibuster is basically the requ- requirement that for anything to pass the US Senate, it basically has to have 60 votes. There's exceptions. There's a separate process called budget reconciliation that allows some things to basically not be subject to the filibuster. But in a simple form, the thing that stands in the way of Democrats pursuing most of this agenda is a decision on the filibuster. And as far as I know, I have not seen Senator Ossoff or Senator Warnock take a position on this. Listeners, if if you found something, you should send it to us. We we did a little digging we couldn't find where either had taken a very definitive position on this. Luke, should they vote to get rid of the filibuster?
1: Yes. <laughs> I I mean, the filibuster was the thing that the segregationists in the South used to prevent civil rights legislation from coming to the Senate floor for decades. It is an archaic rule used to impose the will of the minority onto the majority of Americans. And this is exactly what I was talking about when it comes to unity. The filibuster is a tool to disrupt what should be unifying objectives of the country and has been many, many times it's very difficult to get over filibusters and its moment has passed. There was a time in the United States where I think there was more justification for it, where the population inequalities between states were not so stark. But in our current moment, it is just unacceptable to continue to have the filibuster. And so I I, I am 100% behind getting rid of it slash reforming it. And to be clear, and I, I'm sure if you're listening to the show, you probably don't need to be told this, but we have like, this is not the Mr. Smith goes to Washington talking filibuster, which I actually approve of. Cause if you're willing to physically stay up there and talk for 24 hours on something, I think you should have that right. <laughs> you should be able to do that. Uh, but it, this is literally someone just says, I filibuster. And until they get 60 votes, they can't Stop that. And that that's just not how a democratic system should work. It just it is really, really stacking the deck at this point for uh, people to be obstructionist and to not cooperate. In the past, when there was less polarization in the United States, uh, I think it probably did bring people to the table and made them negotiate a little bit more. But it's just like that's not the era we're in. And it's, it's really just created a situation where I think it's given both parties an ability to just say, nope, this isn't going to happen. And so they don't negotiate, whereas if they knew Democrats could pass this bill without them, that actually might draw them to the negotiating table in a more significant way, I think. The, the other thing I'll say, though, is... I'm sympathetic to the folks that don't want to do it because there have been times that Democrats were able to use the filibuster to prevent the Trump administration from doing things that would have been terrible uh, when they had unified control. And uh, the, as Kyle mentioned, there's this concept of budget reconciliation, which lets you uh, handle some fiscal matters uh With less than sixty votes, and you know, like a normal uh, issue, and lets you do uh, a bare majority. And I think if they want to give the Republicans a chance to save the filibuster themselves by not acting like obstructionists and supporting some areas of the Biden agenda, or even simply just not filibustering everything because filibustering is an option, I still think they should use budget reconciliation to get Biden's package passed as quickly as possible because we just can't wait. We can't wait on these things. Uh, we, we have to get this money moving so that the United States can actually handle this the coronavirus pandemic. And that, that train needs to be leaving the station as soon as possible. And I'm hoping that the Biden administration realizes that and will you know push for that move soon.
0: Well, and the place where the rubber really meets the road on this is to me, on on voting issues. So most of the coronavirus relief package could probably be done through reconciliation. From the reporting that I've read in, in Politico and other places that are looking closely at the legislative process here, that does appear to be the backup plan for this COVID relief package, as if there are no Republican votes for it, to push that through via reconciliation. Um, so the first bill that Democrats in the House and the Senate have is a package of policies that would make it easier to vote. It includes automatic voter registration. It includes a process to end partisan gerrymandering and require every state in the country to draw their legislative districts using nonpartisan commissions. Um, It restores the right to vote for people with criminal convictions. Um, There's a part of this bill that is named after John Lewis, and that part of the bill brings back part of the Voting Rights Act and and strengthens it. We'll put a summary uh, of this bill in the show notes for y'all. That's a bill that can't really be done under budget reconciliation. The basic rule of budget reconciliation is it has to impact the budget, and just changing the rules around voting to make it easier to vote just doesn't have an impact on the budget. John Ossoff in particular was very Uh, active about passing a new Voting Rights Act, about making it easier to vote, about stopping voter suppression. You couldn't do any of that without ending the filibuster or getting 60 votes in the Senate, including nine Republicans, to back a Democratic proposal on this. And so I think that's where it's going to be interesting to watch because some of this stuff they can sidestep the filibuster conversation, but once you get into the heart of the Democratic agenda, they're really going to have to make a decision there. And so it's interesting because they've they've been in a negotiation over the last week about a power sharing agreement in the US Senate. Yes, Democrats have a majority in the Senate because of Vice President Kamala Harris's 51st vote, but that's still there still is a um a level of power sharing that has to happen on committees and on some of the structure of the Senate. And Republicans have been very persistent that Democrats pledge not to get rid of the filibuster. And they make that pledge now at the beginning of the Senate or at the beginning of this session, instead of having it be a bargaining chip in the middle of a heated legislative negotiation. So they can see that there would be legislative problems for Republicans if the filibuster is gone. The challenge is getting 51 Senate Democrats to see that too.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. Uh, I think the fate of the filibuster is entirely in the Republicans' hands. And what I mean by that is Democrats are just frankly tired of how Republicans have approached governing issues in our federal government for a while. And from what I've heard of the reporters that follow Democratic senators, there, there's a lot of movement towards getting rid of the filibuster that was not there previously uh, because of Uh, The Republican obstruction because of the insurrection at the Capitol. And I really think that if the Republicans decide to act the way that they did during the early days of the Obama administration and trying to stop everything, that the filibuster days are probably numbered. And on the other hand, if some Republicans want to uh, protect the filibuster, then they, they better start putting their money where their mouth is and trying to pass some common sense legislation uh, and try to unify the country.
0: Let's close up shop here with a couple of news and notes from the state legislative session. Um, the first thing we are recording on Monday evening, January 25th, and this morning in the jolt in the AJC, the AJC laid out some of the staff shuffling that Governor Kemp has done. Most notably, to me, he um, he has a new top aide who was Johnny Isaacson's former Chief of Staff and the AJC suggested that Governor Kemp may be adopting a more conciliatory approach as he looks forward to his re-election bid. Um, It's also been notable that he has done a bit of a press blitz in the last few weeks. He had an op-ed in CNBC. Um, He had a phone interview on, on Eric Erickson's show. And I've noticed that he is really starting to sort of circle the wagons on his message that you heard in the State of the State speech, including his lives and livelihoods, defense of his COVID-19 response, talking about teacher raises, and talking about he, unlike other Republicans, acting on the issue of health care. We also know that his political team that was a part of his first run for governor, that they are not completely shut out of this process. The, The AJC reporting suggests that they are likely to form some outside firms. These are folks, including a friend of the show, Ryan Mahoney, who said that we are a critically acclaimed podcast. Thanks, Ryan. Um, he's going to be working along with with other people in Kemp's circle in in outside groups, boosting Kemp's re-election bid without coordinating directly with his campaign. That's at least what reporting suggests. One other note on this that I found interesting, Eric Erickson in his Newsletter noted that Governor Kemp is probably going to get the legislature to let him create some sort of super PAC, and he noted some restrictions on the state level about how races can be funded for state campaigns that is more restrictive than the way federal races are funded. A little unclear to me exactly what he's referencing there, Luke, but it does uncover a dynamic that people in the party are upset with the party chair, David Schaefer, and are blaming him for losing the Senate elections. All of this comes from Eric Erickson's newsletter, and that this is why Governor Kemp might be looking for a little bit of outside help in his bid for re-election. On any of those points, what does that tell you about where Brian Kemp thinks he is politically?
1: Well, there there is a lot to digest there. Obviously, Kemp uh, pushing Ryan Mahoney a little bit out of his key group is obviously a mistake, because Ryan recognizes that this is a critically acclaimed uh podcast that is critical to the dialogue in georgia so we thank you again for that ryan uh yeah so, you know, so I, uh, <clears throat> we'll give you a mic anytime you want <laughs> that's right please come on ryan we would love to have you and i know i sound sarcastic but i actually think it'd probably f- be fun <laughs> So please, come on. It'll be it'll be a good time. Um, But uh, joking aside, like, I think it is really interesting because, again, what we've been a little obsessed with uh, is like, what is the Republican Party going to do after these losses? And it seems like Kemp is making some motions towards trying to. Be more conciliatory. I mean, we have said a lot of nice things about Johnny Isaacson in the past. Uh, so you know, trying to be more like Johnny Isaacson for a Republican is a, a good thing in my mind. Always, um, because you know, obviously, I'd rather have a Democrat governor. But if I have to have a Republican one following Isaacson's uh, footsteps, is a not not a terrible thing. So I'm I'm pro that. I I, I think what will be interesting is to see if he has kicked out his previous team and, like, how much they are still, like, working to elect Governor Kemp uh, because you know, not without getting too deep in the weeds, there's coordination laws. So if they do actually start a super PAC, he would not be able to work directly with them. But if they basically just do the anti-Abrams, anti-Democrat campaign, and Kemp focuses more on the positive, like, look at what I've done, Georgia stuff, like, that's a very typical model. I would not be shocked if that's what happens. That's honestly what I expect will happen. And so... I think both you and I, but also the media in Georgia will need to be smart and sophisticated and watch uh, what his previous team does to hold him accountable, because really, truthfully, if they do uh, break off and form a bunch of groups and end up just being the negative campaign arm, uh, I don't think Kemp really will deserve any... Ploggett's for changing his course because he really hasn't changed his course. He's just obscured his his course. Um, the other thing, though, that I find interesting is just to the extent that the head of the Georgia Republican Party is actively feuding with the head of, you know, the party elected wise, because typically speaking, the state party apparatus is there as a tool for the governor uh, of the state, I mean that that's just like very very typical Democrats did it when we were in control of the governorship in Georgia, around the country. That's typically what's happened. But more and more, there's been the like Trumpier side of the the party has taken over the official party apparatus. I mean, this is something that's happening in Arizona as well, where the Republican governor of Arizona, who's actually quite popular, uh, got censored by his own state party. Uh and, and so this like open fight between Schaefer and other elements of the party has been really interesting to me. I, I agree with Erickson. It looks like he's trying to run for office. Uh so I just kinda wonder where he's going to land and and try to run um he lost what? last time around to Jeff Duncan in the primary right and so I mean I would not in a primary uh, runoff I believe yeah and I, I would not be shocked by Schaefer trying to go anywhere else um and it seemed pretty early on that he was interested in running for office again uh and so it, it I I think I think there's just a lot of interesting dynamics happening there that we should keep watching
0: one other note before we go, if if Brian Kemp himself is really taking a more conciliatory approach, he may not want a big fight over voting rights, but House Speaker David Ralston may have just enabled one. He appointed uh, Barry Fleming to his Special Election Integrity Committee. Uh, Fleming was immediately criticized by voting rights advocates who pointed out that he was a part of an effort in the, in the lead up to the 2016 election to challenge people's voter registrations in Hancock County. Um, he also wrote an op-ed in the Augusta Chronicle following the 2020 elections, describing absentee ballots as the shady part of town near the docks that you don't want to wander into, which is very, uh, creative there, uh, representative Fleming. Um, he, I think obviously has his eye on, Attacking absentee ballot access in this state. Still TBD though about how much of that fight David Ralston wants to have, and whether uh, it was a way of sidelining Fleming to put him on this committee, or whether it empowers him to be a champion of these policies in a way that is going to build a constituency for them in the state house.
1: Yeah, I, I I am also watching this pretty closely because giving people committees like this is it can really go in either direction. Sometimes it is to just shut them up and just say, do, you know, do whatever you want, make, you know, file all the reports you want, investigate whatever you want. And we're not going to do anything (laughs) with whatever you come up with. Um, and the other, you know, the other thing though, on the other hand, um, you know, I've, I've read way too much history and I love to read about Lyndon Johnson. And one of the things he was very effective at doing is he like got himself a, uh, army preparedness subcommittee that blew up a bunch of issues about how unprepared we were to deal with the Soviets and, you know, gave himself this huge platform to talk about a bunch of problems that, similar to these voting rights issues, weren't real (laughs) and weren't nearly as substantive as he made them out to be. And so that's the thing I'm concerned about that Fleming will do and, you know, following uh, that example and trying to blow up this issue that isn't real. Um, And, I'm concerned by his appointment there, and I'm hoping that this is not going to turn into anything, but I'm definitely leaning more on the side of them putting Fleming in that position to come up with something that's going to be harmful to the voting system of Georgia, and I I hate hate to see that.
0: So we're going to leave it there for this week. A couple of trends to watch in the legislative session. Now that they're past budget hearings, you might see more action on Um, some real legislative proposals, including this fight over voting that we'll be following. We'll also be watching to see how session continues amidst the threat of the COVID-19 pandemic and this sense that they have that they need to get the little budget done quickly in case session gets interrupted. Um, Definitely not out of the woods yet for a delayed two-part session that that takes us into the summer, but no matter how long they stay in Atlanta, we are going to be right here with you to follow it along and and talk about it all day Uh, but for now we are going to leave it there so luke boggs thank you as always for joining the show
1: happy to be here
0: all righty y'all we'll talk to you again soon bye thanks for tuning into peach pod if you liked what you heard subscribe to peach pod on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts we'll be back with another episode next week until then take care y'all